Hello, I'm Joan. I'm a Canadian family physician who also works as a restorative medical educator, facilitator, and coach. I create spaces that rehumanize the work of healthcare. I'm creating this podcast to remind myself, as well as anyone else working in a helping profession, that when you are working and caring for your human patients, you are the other human in the room. Okay. Well, hello there, healthcare humans. Thanks for coming back for another episode, a very special episode of The Other Human in the Room, because it's also a special episode of Ending Physician Overwhelm. Ending Physician Overwhelm, which like those things are related. Totally. (laughs) So we thought we'd introduce ourselves as two physician coaches who have podcasts and then kind of just have a conversation. So um, Megan, do you want to go first? Sure. So I'm Dr. Megan Mello. I'm uh, board certified in family and obesity medicine, and I practice in Seattle, Washington. And I'm also a certified uh, life coach through the life coach school. And I coach physicians primarily on issues around burnout, people pleasing, perfectionism, uh, you know, boundary issues, all of those things that I really think are sort of habits that get wound up into us and cause a lot of problems for us. Um, I also am a certified Daring Way facilitator. And so I lead people through the work of Brene Brown, which has been just very impactful for me, uh, really sort of getting into vulnerability and shame and shame resilience. And, you know, some of those, some of those fun issues. And uh, in my personal life, I live in Seattle, Washington with my husband and my two sons. And let's hear about you. Yes. Hi, I'm Dr. Joan Chan. I um, also practice family medicine up in Guelph, Ontario, Canada. Um, And I am also, I call myself a restorative medical educator and coach. I, cause I really like both the education piece and like teaching as well as the coaching and probably the best coaching is teaching and the best teaching is coaching. So it's a bit of like a combo. (laughs) Um, And the thing I say is that I help humans in healthcare to try and make their experience of healthcare feel more human. Cause the thing that I have learned the most from this world of coaching also certified at life coach school and, and also done some other certifications and really the process of like coming home to yourself as a human being and in the process, recognizing how dehumanized we have been Mm -hmm. like, maybe just like in the world, socialized mm-hmm. female certainly like a couple certainly. of identities dehumanizing yeah. And, yeah. and but certainly in medical training that being a, a real time of of just needing to set aside all your bodily and emotional and spiritual human needs and that then the medical culture continues on to reinforce that to sort of put yourself last pretend you don't have a human body pretend you don't have an emotional well yourself, you know? And so, um, that's why I like calling it restorative education and coaching. Cause I think something yeah. was really lost and that's something that, um, I have found personally, like in my own life that coaching and learning from teachers like Brene Brown. So I love you're certified through her, like folks like that, who are interested in being like, can we all just name that? Can we just, I don't yeah. like, get back it's to not being supposed human. to be this hard. Yeah. Can we just get back <laughs> to being human? Like, I think this shouldn't be this hard, you know? Yeah, I love that. And I 
it's funny the restorative uh, part. Yeah. Because I often talk with people about like, we need to unlearn what we learned, right? Yes. Because what we learned got us here, yeah. right? It got us to be physicians. It got us into medical school. It got us all these things, right? It had its purpose. And now it's too much, right? It is dehumanizing. It has taken us away from being connected to our body and who the heck are we anymore? Right. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I wonder like, um, for you, how that experience has been, especially like, when did you start noticing like God, whether you reframed it as like, I'm being dehumanized, but like, yeah, how's it been being a human in healthcare these past few years, you know, and what brought you to the <sighs> coaching world? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's been an off and on struggle for me, uh, really since pretty early in my attending career, you know, I felt, you know, during residency, it's like, yeah, just bring it on. I'll just pile as much stuff as I can on here. Right. And, um, got out into the quote unquote real world as an attending and was just like, oh my gosh, there's just too much stuff. There's too much pressure. There's too much too much work all the time. Um, and I didn't really know how to cope with it. And so, you know, some up and down experiences with burnout, quite frankly, and, you know, had a couple of kids, you know, early on, I started teaching in a residency program and I was doing sort of literature searches on physician well-being and physician resilience and wellness and, you know, trying to really figure out like, how can I make this better? Cause this feels really hard. Yeah. And kind of all the, all the people I turned to who frankly were mostly men, um, you know, were kind of like, I don't know, this is just, this is just kind of how it was. Um, and a lot of the women that I saw were really burned out, really struggling, um, but wouldn't always talk about really any of it. Um, and you know, you get to start thinking like, am I broken? Is there something wrong with me that I don't like this, that I don't think it's okay. Um, but each time I'd kind of crank myself up harder and be like, you just need to work harder. You just need to just, you know, forget those human parts even more yep. <laughs> if that's possible. <laughs> right. Um, you know, and sort of, again, sort of went through periods of this and, um, in starting about 2019, like really started to be so crispy that my attitude was starting to be a problem. And I was starting to get called out on it. Like, great patient interactions, but, um, I had nothing left in the tank for staff that I worked with. Um, you know, I was really upset and cranky at meetings and complaining a lot, you know, and unfortunately the response to that was just to sort of be in trouble, right. Mm -hmm. To be sort of labeled a difficult person. Mm -hmm. Um, at one point in 2020, uh, good, I don't know, five or six months into the pandemic. Yeah. I got sat down with HR uh, and they, they were like, you really need to fix your attitude problem. And, and they should, they, you know, put a pretty picture on, literally said, put a pretty picture on your desk, which oh, I didn't actually you have a that? desk anymore oh, no. um, because of COVID. Like I didn't actually have like, a, you know, I was just like, yeah. yeah. Um, and like that same week, I, I happened to have a medical appointment, you know, for my human body and, uh, with somebody I didn't know, and it was a vascular surgeon, varicose veins. And, um, you know, she's like, she found out as a doctor and she's like, how are you? And I just burst into tears. I just lost it. Mm -hmm. 
And I was just like, I can't do this anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, and my coping was to ultimately like secretly get board certified in obesity medicine. I didn't tell anybody what I was doing. I was like, this will be my out. I have to have a thing to do to leave. And I got my board certification. I put in my notice and I just was like, you know what? I can't move on to anything else feeling this way. And I happened to stumble across a physician coach who was doing like a webinar and I went and um, somebody else who's life coach school trained like we are. And the thought model that she presented just made so much sense. It was like light bulbs went on. I was just like, oh, that's, that's stuff that people have never said out loud to me before, that my thoughts create my feelings, my feelings drive my actions. That's why everything is so hard. Mm. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, you know, joined her program, ended up becoming a coach, and you know, so it's it's been sort of a product process through that. I eventually, I did leave that job, but I eventually returned to medicine and really have come to it from such a different place. Yeah, and it's made such a huge difference for me. Mm, I love that. Tell me your story, um, because I always start my guest interviews, you know, really kind of hearing about, you know, how did you get here to this place where you're a practicing physician and you're a coach? What was your experience like? Yeah. And I think I love the name of your podcast that it's just names that overwhelm. Cause I just think for me, if I look back, like I, I think I, I almost wouldn't have called it burnout though. It also kind of was, but it was more overwhelm. Mm-hmm. Um, I, since the beginning, since even medical training, and but certainly coming out into practice, I remember posting, I think it was within my first year of like having my own practice. I, like mm-hmm. I, I do outpatient family medicine and I posted on some like Facebook grouping, like, um, does anyone have like resources or would be interested in like a support group? Cause this like seems impossibly hard and no one's talking how are we supposed to do this (laughs) yes and so pretty early on like a couple other people were like yes and so we like formed a little support group and that that was so fabulous just for that peer connection and Mm -hmm. and and really useful and you know the demands of a growing practice plus then adding in yeah I have two boys as well five and three Mm -hmm. so like going through that and then for me like I think a lot of people in the world and especially like physicians and other clinicians, like the pandemic, I was halfway through my second pregnancy, March, 2020 Mm. and, um, talk about overwhelm, you know, and like hormones, plus hormones, plus like (laughs) just, and it was kind of interesting. Like that first year was like, it almost was like galvanizing in a way where it was like, I, I was like, I had a singular focus, which was like, try and COVID from entering my house and hi- like hyper-focus on the pandemic. Yeah. So that first year felt super intense, but like pure survival mode and mm-hmm. in some ways, slightly empowering, set yeah. some boundaries with family that I hadn't before. Mm-hmm. So like there were some gifts in there, but then especially like returning to family medicine in like January, 2021 and the coping mechanism I had, because it was like, the world is burning. Everything's helpless. We're in our like 50 billionth lockdown already. The vaccines just come out. Yeah. 
like I'm trying to like outrun my feelings. So obviously I'm going to become the MD lead of our local vaccine clinic. And as well as I had already joined during my mat leave, I was like in Zoom meetings, breastfeeding from home because you couldn't go anywhere for like our local anti-oppression advisory team because, you know, systemic racism was finally being talked about, which is good. But like so many committees plus clinical work, plus a six month old and a three-year-old, um, and obviously that wasn't sustainable. <laughs> I rode that wave for a while, but there yeah. was a moment, it was like in the middle of that summer and things had taken a bit of a turn, you know, I, part of it was so hard was like one of the kind of my things I was focusing on was like, I can't get my babies vaccinated, but I can vaccinate everyone around me. That was kind of like my, mm. one of the things I was like yeah. super focused yeah. on. And that summer, I don't know if it depends what job you were having that time, but our, it, where we were, the only people who hadn't yet gotten vaccinated were people who really weren't going to. Yes. And it was leading to a lot of t- tough conversations yes. and a lot of socialized, internalized guilt and shame. Mm-hmm. But apparently it was my job to push these people across the finish line right. when that really wasn't even an alignment of my values because I am, I've always been like, you're in charge of your life and you're an adult you get to decide here's the information here's the information and yet I felt like there's you know it's like here's how to convince them and 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 just noticing my rising resentment and and some of it was like honestly like some of what people said was just like pretty harsh yeah and it was you know I understand it was from the stories they needed to tell themselves and it's all, but like at the moment, like just getting kind of the waves of that and and starting to feel for the first time, pretty like angry at some of my patients and, and just resentful. Like there was a moment when someone came in and they're like, Oh, by the way, you know, at the end of our 20 minute appointment, that was supposed to be 10 minutes, you know? Right. Right. And they're like, <laughs> my knee also has started hurting. And I wasn't just resentful of the person. I was resentful of their knee. I was like, seriously, how dare you? How (laughs) dare you? Why can't one body in this place not fall apart? Cause I don't, I can't do it. Like, and I realized I can't handle your knee. I can't handle your knee. Yeah. And I'd kind of, I think I'd heard about different kinds of coaching, but like the one that then I was like, I need to do something. And I'd heard about Sarah Smith's charting champions course, where she also, she also Mm -hmm. trained the same school as us and Mm -hmm. her, her, program was like a perfect gateway into coaching because it had this very specific purpose and I was like charting all day my inbox was overflowing like all the things and so it's like I can get this one thing under control and through that then discovering that just the wider world of coaching and some of the concepts that like are just so powerful to explore like concepts about emotions and how they aren't there to kill you they are there to help you and protect you and maybe it's only totally okay to feel them all the way through including overwhelm like actually for me at this point like when I think of overwhelm really it's often because my body is is firing multiple emotions at once Mm -hmm. and that's actually all that's happening and that's maybe I don't want to minimize it because it feels terrible when you're in it but like actually then if you're unafraid of addressing those emotions one at a time it's okay you haven't fixed the world but that actually the world's going to be the world. That's like the thing I've learned through coaching is (laughs) the world. I, I didn't make no illusions. I'm not, not one of the, I'm not like, everything's actually fine. Like things are not fine. Pretty clearly objectively. And I do have control over 
how I take care of myself, how I treat myself. Mm -hmm. Um, Can I be a friend to myself and to my body and really center my humanity? And in doing so, there's nothing that can chronically overwhelm me. And if I feel temporarily overwhelmed, just being a human, you know? And so I think that sort of, that's often how I tell like the beginning of my story, just because um, I think a lot of people, especially, you know, those who go into healthcare, those who are like high achievers, like we try and outrun our feelings and we try and outrun like the sinking. I think it was just the sinking feeling of this world's not okay. And I need to, and I can only do so much. And I really maxed out my capacity and I was, it was impressive what that max was, but I am no longer interested in doing that. I'm interested in, like I said something um, earlier this year, and I've kind of had a little mantra of like, what if I designed my life, including clinical life, et cetera, to be at like maybe 75% of my capacity, Mm. like intentionally Mm -hmm. designing my life to be under what I am capable of doing. Yeah. That almost sounds like kind of Whoa. rude. I'm actually like interested in what you think. Cause I saw it said like recovering perfectionist. Like that, I, I'm sorry if I've offended anyone listening by saying that, but it's like kind of, when you think about like, I don't know, a machine or any kind of system, you're kind of, you want that machine to have some buffer so mm-hmm. that when something happens, it's not already at its max. Yeah. It's got, it needs to have, you know, some break time, you know, like yes. if we run it full capacity, 24 hours a day, yeah, it's going to wear out. It's going to wear out. It's not even, yeah. it's not actually designed for that. And even if it was designed for it, where there was no, say this was like a machine and there was no resistance and no whatever, yeah. then something, what happens when the next thing comes and you, right. you're already at your capacity because the next right. thing's always going to come. It's always going to leave yeah. space. And so yeah. That's felt like, honestly, at times these past few years, like, uh, sort of practically speaking, like maybe cutting back on hours, saying only taking on so much in a certain mm-hmm. clinical encounter, offering patients opportunities to take, um, control of their own care in ways, you know, that yeah. have, I think been empowering for them and for me. And sometimes I'm like, this feels illegal. Like, it feels like, I feel like one of my sort of it feels thoughts, naughty, doesn't it? Right. It's like, like I, I think I'm going to get in trouble. Cause I yeah. only wrote so many lines in my, my note and I didn't write every single thing or whatever. Right. Like you think yeah. you're going to get in trouble. Yeah. yeah. Well, I want to go back to one thing that you were talking about when, you know, kind of feeling this pressure to get people vaccinated. Uh, yes. And I'm curious for you too, cause I was, I was in a big system before and you know, we'd have all these metrics in front of us all the time of like, you know, how you're doing with patients with diabetes and, you know, their A1C numbers and their, um, yeah, colon cancer screening rates, you know, kind of all these things that we're supposed to get to a certain number. And I remember, especially early on in training and, you know, and persisted, yeah, of having that pressure of like, oh, it's my job to convince these people yeah. and somehow manipulate them into frankly, you know, kind of believing that they need to do things a certain way into always taking their medications, or at least always picking them up as though they're taking their medications. So the metrics work (laughs) or, you know, you know, any number of things. And, you know, it's just like, we don't actually control 
what other adults do. Again, we're there to advise, diagnose, prescribe, like we've got a role, right? <clears throat> but I think one thing that coaching brought to me was, was really being aware of like, I don't actually control what happens when they leave the room. I love what Sarah Smith said on one, one of her podcasts. She's like, it's not any of my business, what my patients do once they leave the clinic. Yes. Right. It's not my business, whether they're taking their medications or whether they're doing this or that, because I don't hold that right. Like I, I'm not responsible for that, but our systems absolutely benefit from us continuing to believe that we should be able to manage those things and that, and that we can. Yes. Right. And, and like the end of that is they think they're benefiting and probably in the short term, whatever metrics they think are important, they are. Mm -hmm. But I think if you look at how people are either quiet quitting or just full on <laughs> quitting, right? I don't think it's working out so well for these right. folks. Yeah. Maybe I, that's where like, I had this moment where I had to kind of like go through a grief process because it didn't have like when the pandemic happened and it's like everything blew out sideways. Yeah. One thing I was like, maybe we'll actually say, look, we can change things. Look, the old ways are like literally gone. Yeah. So how do we want to move forward? Look, how at do we want to rebuild this? Yes. Yeah. And then um, I'm, I'm hopeful some places they did really look and say, gosh, all we have is each other. What if we actually do this together? And I, I, start, I, you know what? I do feel like in my clinic, my little corner of the healthcare system, which is the system I have the most direct influence over, you know, me and five other docs and, you know, doing our own thing. Mm -hmm. I can see that it's not perfect for sure, but like even narrowing down to myself and my little ecosystem in there, like I think that I can have influence there and we have bonded through the pandemic in ways that I think can serve us. Mm -hmm. But when you look at the system as, as a whole, like um, not everyone learned that lesson, sadly. Mm -hmm. And the whole notion that like if someone's A1C, for example, like I, I think we just have to zoom all the way out at like, what are we even doing um, with things like targets and things mm -hmm. like, and especially in any kind of way, individualizing so that what, so that we're viewing them like a report card so that a physician would say, I'm failing because only blah, blah percent of my patients have A1Cs. Like do like that is speaking of even equity, thinking mm -hmm. about the populations, whether it's ethnicity or socioeconomic status who are because of no fault of their own, yeah. but either genetics and also environment are going yeah. to just naturally mean they are much higher risk of much higher A1Cs. Why would, who's this helping? How is this not going to end up being punitive or people starting right. to prune their panel? I don't even know what happens when people feel that pressure. Right. And like, is any of that medicine? Is any of that caring for people? Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. It's heartbreaking. And, and it's, it's not only dehumanizing to us, right. Of trying to make us believe that we're responsible for that, but it's also reducing our patients to numbers and not to say, right. I don't think either you or I would say, well, we don't want our patients to have, you know, good blood sugar control or, yeah. you know, a, a healthy blood pressure. Right. Cause of course we do, yeah. but at what cost? Right. And with yes. 
with what resources are we providing them? Right. Because our patients are not numbers either. Right. They, they are the other human in the room besides us. Yes. Sometimes we actually have to remember that like literally there's two humans humans. (laughs) and like, cause like what gets in the way is like all the stories they might be telling about themselves or about speaking of Renee Brown. I just love how she says that and about us. And then there's all the stories we're telling about them and ourselves and all like, I almost think like, it's like, there can be boogeyman's in the room. You almost feel them like the medical legal team, the college, they could complain to the colleague who's always very judgmental and is up to date on the guidelines when you're not. And you like feel them like this pressure in the room. Like, yeah, I want to just say it's fine, but apparently I'm supposed to supposed to say this, say this. And it just feels, (laughs) you can just feel how inauthentic it feels. You feel how you see the patient's shoulders droop. And and then like, no wonder we're burnt out at the end of the day. Like, what if we put that aside? Like, that's one way I really think about like the power we have as the people who have the actual medical training, who are doing the actual work with the actual other humans. If we just, if we collectively decide like, it's cute, you keep bringing us these numbers. Thank you for the information. Like as if they're bringing us the weather. Like if yeah. someone's like, it's cold today. Or you're like, oh, it's my fault. So it's the same thing. Here's the weather. <laughs> of some random facts about our patients. Interesting. And then we go right back to doing what we do. My hypothesis is in the long run, any influence I could possibly have to maybe empower or help shift or whatever. If I put those metrics aside, I actually have the best chance of maybe influencing a couple of those people's metrics anyway. Mm -hmm. Like we need to set down those things. And much more so, right. Then yeah, constantly sort of hitting them with, look, you're not taking that. You should be doing this. You should be doing that. Like that's not building trust. That's not going to bring them into the medical community. Um, thinking about that. Yeah. We're getting back to Brene Brown, you know, thinking about the role of shaming, right? Yes. I don't think that any of us were ever probably overtly taught to shame our patients, but covertly, yeah. Oh yeah. Right. And that doesn't work. Doesn't work with our kids. Doesn't <laughs> work with her patients. Right. It just creates more heartache, right. More, more trauma to us, more trauma to them, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's like, and it, it, I think it's sort of this like chain of shaming, right? Like it's just that yeah. shame begets shame. Right. And right. So... Because then we get shamed for not having the metrics. Yes. Or or it went the other direction. We're shamed for not having the metrics. So yeah. we then shame our patients. Totally. Yeah. yeah. That so I'm curious, like, especially having done sort of deeper work around Brene, like, did that just make you see shame everywhere? Like I I think so much about I sometimes call it like the shame based medical culture or the hidden curriculum. Mm -hmm. When you kind of think about that, like what, what comes up for you when you view like the role of shame in some of the harder parts of our medical culture? Yeah. I think for me, I probably didn't see, I mean, I probably didn't think about it too much in terms of patients a little bit, but, um, you know, I could recognize like, Oh, you know, here's an episode where, you know, shame has been used and, um, you know, as a, as a, as a woman, right. I would often receive patients who had, 
you know, kind of left a previous doctor and, you know, maybe experienced shame and, you know, shared their story and, um, you know, trying to validate them in that moment. But, but I think where I really paid a lot of attention to it, where it was really striking to me was seeing how often shame had been used to keep us in a box, right? I think about, you know, the way that our training is, right? It's very shame focused in in the way that perfectionism is really about shame avoidance, right? Shame as a, you know, this is, you know, again, sort of Brene teaching, you know, shame is a universally painful human emotion. It's normal. Animals experience it as well. Um, we, you know, we all don't like the feeling of it. It makes us all want to run and hide and play small and stay safe, right? That's just a natural reaction to it. But I think about how often our training, you know, really drilled into us to avoid shame at all cost. And the consequence of that was, you know, developing these habits of intense perfectionism, if we didn't already have it. And really this hypervigilance that in and of itself is traumatic, right? People talk about not being able to relax, not being able, you know, like maybe they had vacation and they were really looking forward to it. And the whole time, you know, they kept scanning their inbox in case somebody missed something or they were catching up on all the work because they couldn't get it done. Um, you know, I remember having residents who would, um, always be looking at the the labor and delivery board online before they came to their shifts or, you know, checking the patient roster, you know, to see, you know, what was coming for them. And it's all, it's all an attempt to minimize shame and overwhelm, right. To try and be in control of everything. And it's caused so much harm to us. And we, we got so good at doing it to ourselves. That's, that's the really great part, if you will, air quotes here, um, you know, about our medical training, right? We're high achievers. We were taught to avoid shame, right? Think about being pimped on rounds, right? And not knowing an answer, right? We're never going to not know the answer again. Um, that training really built into us this deep and intense and often traumatizing fear of shame. Yes. Fear of not knowing, fear of being wrong, fear of missing something. And we are humans. <laughs> we make mistakes. We yeah. get distracted. We try as much as we can to minimize all those things. But this, this wound up so tight in sort of avoiding shame and fear and overwhelm makes it so much harder mm. to be mindful and present and to not make mistakes. It actually probably makes it probably creates more mistakes, right? Absolutely. Um, yeah. So, so I couldn't, I couldn't unsee all those elements of how our training had done that to us. I couldn't unsee. And, um, I did the Brene training mostly, uh, before I'd made the decision to leave. Most of it was completed before, but I kind of couldn't unsee the environment I was in and how I would say it at the time, how I was being made to feel, <laughs> Right. Because I didn't yet have the, the idea that my thoughts create my feelings. And I had hundred percent adapted these thoughts from the training that I had received of this is how I have to do things. I have to watch for these things. I have to do this. I have to try and control. 
I have to try and get my patients, you know, on board with the plan with all the right medicines and, you know, get them, get their A1C down. Um, and that was a hard, it was a hard realization of how much shame was, was kind of just baked into everything around me. Yeah. It's a painful realization. You understand why some don't want to see it or defend it or easier to keep my head down. It's easier to keep up hustling. Right. Yes. It's sort of like, I, I think sometimes that's like almost why you internalize it. It's like, no, it must be me because if the truth is like, oh no, like our whole system and it's not the entire system and it's not to throw out all the humans in it, but certainly like, ah, like a lot of how this whole thing was structured and designed and operates Mm. is on some really painful, traumatizing stories. Yeah. And it's easier for a while to be like, maybe I can just win the game. Maybe right. the game maybe is winnable. I'll find the answer and I'll be better than everybody else yeah. that I've seen suffering and miserable or yeah. overusing alcohol or food or, you know, any yes. of the millions of ways that people cope. Yes. I, I remember sort of looking around and sort of hearing people talk and thinking, is everybody just having a bunch of wine every night? Is that, is that what we're doing? That doesn't seem right to me. Right. <laughs> You're like, is this, is that seriously the only way, you know, Not, like all the I things. I don't like wine. What am I? <laughs> <laughs> oh no, I'm screwed. I'm something else. Yeah. Oh, so no. true. And like, I think, um, I think the, the good thing to know is, and I think what coaching really allows you to do is yeah. Like basically take back ownership of your thoughts, take back Mm -hmm. ownership of the stories you choose to tell yourself. Mm -hmm. And, and it's not to say that those other stories aren't in the air you're breathing and it's not that they're not there all day. So it's, yeah, that's still there. And, and they, they still still come back to me. Oh, they still come back. I mean, like when, when you've been thinking them and hearing them for decades, like they're, they're there. But then there's this moment, maybe after you've spun for a bit or, you know, I don't know about you, but over time, as I've been doing more of this, I can catch it a bit quicker where I'm mm-hmm. like, there you are. There I are. know what you do. And this is the story I choose yeah. to tell about myself and my inherent goodness. This is, this is where I'm going to anchor myself because frankly, yeah. it feels better. Yeah. And I have no reason to believe it's not truer, honestly. Right. We get it. We get to actually get a choice, you know? Yeah. Yes. Realizing I can, I can shape the way that I think, right. I can't, yes. I can't change every thought that comes to me. I can't, I can't prevent some of those painful thoughts from coming through, yeah. but I can choose to notice them, learn to notice them and tune them in and say, no, remember that's not the story that we're running with anymore. Yeah. Turns out I'm worthy right now. Yep. I'm, you know, responsible for my parts, but not for everybody else. And I'm doing the best that I can. Yeah. And some days are easier than others. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit because we've already used the word a bunch, but um, I've heard you speak on your podcast about trauma and painful experiences. And I don't think that we've talked generally enough in the medical community Mm -hmm. about 
little T, mostly little T traumas that we have experienced through training. Certainly there are big T traumas that have happened. Um, let's not deny that, right? Assaults, um, abuse, harassment, like, like those things have definitely happened. But we don't talk enough about the little T traumas, right? Being um, yelled at or belittled, being told that you have to make something work, even though you don't know how to do it, or you don't have the proper equipment, or you're not trained for it. And I heard you share a story, and if you don't mind sharing it again, yeah. of sort of realizing, realizing an experience during residency that really impacted you. Mm-hmm. Yes, I would love to. I think, I think the thing that was really help, helpful for me to learn about trauma, because I think the way that trauma was sort of taught to me or generally spoken about was like, it's PTSD and it is soldiers. Sort of the, the big yep. soldiers and yep. then like assault victims. And yep. like in, in school, it yep. was sort of focused on sexual trauma, which I mean, is an important component yep. and like being sensitive to it and almost like, but don't talk about it because it might trigger them and so then it becomes like need to find out stigmatizing it more assaulted but but they don't want to talk about it yeah it was very confusing and then made it seem actually more like don't go there which i um i'm sure wasn't the intention but (laughs) not not their desired effect so then i i and this was even post-training like learning um that there were big and little t traumas that there were the kind of weathering things that even yeah being just socialized female in a patriarchal society being mm-hmm. a visible minority in a mm-hmm. white supremacist society like all these different things that those even those in the microaggressions that come can have a over time cumulative effect and i i have a hypothesis that at least many of us who went through medical training would describe just the the experience of going through that time and sort of the shame devices that are used and exploited, that that ends up being its own weathering. And that's the dehumanization yeah. in a way is saying traumatized, traumatizing, right? Yeah. Um, and the, the, the thing that helped even crystallize it further is like that if, if something lives in you as a trauma, like, cause the notion is if you have something in your body and you're overreact, overreacting. I'm putting that mm-hmm. in quotes to some current event that seems benign. Yeah, you know, it's likely because it's reminding you of a past event. And so, what decides to live in your body, and does your nervous system get overprotective of? Mm-hmm. It's times where something alarming or hurtful happened to you, and then in the aftermath, you are left feeling helpless, so mm-hmm. like out of control mm-hmm. and alone, so disconnected. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And man, helpless and alone describes yeah. a lot of what I felt on those words, especially I would say in clerkship as a medical student. And the story that I'd shared, um, I was sharing it in the like framing around people pleasing, which mm-hmm. is a concept that I really resonated with when I first heard. And then digging into it further, thinking about how often what we call people pleasing is actually a trauma response. Um, there's um you know, like the classical trauma responses of like fight, flight, freeze. But there's this fourth one, fawn, F-A-W-N, which is like, and this is again, animals, like mm-hmm. everyone actually can use this as a safety mechanism in their nervous system of if you're presented with a threat and you think you can't take them in a fight, you're not fast enough to run away from them. Playing dead doesn't seem like a good idea. Instead, you kind of go, nice kitty, nice kitty. Or, you know, you, you say, you say soothing, pleasant, 
things that you think the predator needs to hear. You're not rocking the boat. I am here to please you so that I survive. And really connecting that, it it made me look back on this event and my medical training in a whole new way because um, uh, the short version of it is, I was in a setting with an older male preceptor in like, um, at the start of like, it was going to be like a cardiac surgery, like a long surgery. I had already had some experiences with this preceptor where he had sort of outright said to me, he didn't think I was a very good learner. And, um, this was a, this was a preceptor in a rotation that was very important to me. It was the mm-hmm. specialty I wanted to get into. Mm-hmm. And now we're in this OR setting and he's like, Hey, do you want to put in this catheter? I have never put it in a catheter before. I kind of knew the theory of it mm-hmm. and everything in me, honestly, if, if I was, if I was like fully outside of the sort of socialization and trauma response, I would have been like, I am not comfortable as certainly in this setting. Could you, yeah. could I watch you do this one? And you explain Can it I to see me one first. Can I see one first, please. And have you be a safe, kind person to explain it to me. And then, you know, we could try next time. But instead I just squeaked out. Sure. And then like, attempted to put it in he's like is it in I'm like yeah like I like I'm sure I said yes like somewhere from the outside like you think about who gets labeled I in this case I didn't get labeled but I could have been labeled sort of like an inauthentic or or lying or difficult resident like a weak Mm -hmm. resident because why did you say yes when you should have said no you know like how Mm -hmm. sometimes we do this like you were called difficult in your situation yeah but I was like yes and then you know, inflated the balloon and accidentally tripped the guy. <laughs> like he, yeah. it inflated in his prostate, blood came out. It was not good. Yeah. He, yeah. I, the, the urologist was like, he may never pee on his own again. It was so, and like, and, and that as well. Right. So no one in the room then was stayed with me. I, I remember the, the only female in the room gave me a quick pat and like, it's okay. Anyways, moving on. And like, I was frozen. I, I then had to stand through the then you have to stay in the room <laughs> with your capital F failure where you've, I mean, like a, an adverse medical event happened and no one even like debrief, not even like the basic, like, Hey, let's make sure that doesn't happen again. Like even on yeah, that right. level, let's walk you through the steps. It was just what silent. differently. It was, yeah. it was freezing at, at like at a later date, the preceptor was like on retrospect, maybe that wasn't the right setting. Like he said, like one little thing, but otherwise didn't bring it up. So like helpless, like I truly like my fawn response, which had been conditioned over, you know, my entire life to just always try and do what the teacher says to get the A, right. And especially in this case where I'm like, I feel like I'm catching up, like, you know, and then after like feeling so alone and so unseen and, and not even believing myself, like my default story was, I have to hide how bad of a learner I am. Like my inadequacy, mm-hmm. I just have to hide it. I'm going to ask less questions. I'm going to do a better job at trying to read these people to get what I need to do. I'm not going to try catheters again. I I honestly think maybe I did one other catheter. I somehow escaped, like, I, yeah, and you're like, I'm and done. I don't do them to be clear. I don't use them in my work now, but like, sure. say I needed to at some point, yeah. like I'd, I'd be like, someone needs to actually train me on this. Yeah, I'm gonna actually, it didn't make me want to learn it at all. Like it was like, yeah. I'm going to pretend like I pretended so much when I was supposed to be there to learn. I was supposed to be, yeah. I was supposed to be bad at everything. I was a learner yeah. and yeah. none of that as a baseline was there. And then after I was bad at something, if you will, like I, mm-hmm. I did an inadequate job at this thing 
there was no, even if the emotional support would have been cool, but even like the learning moment, like it was like so left alone and therefore just deep, deep shame and internalizing that versus now I do look back on it and I have so much, much more empathy for that girl in that room Mm -hmm. and totally understand why it went the way it went. I even have expanded and have more understanding at least of likely, well, that preceptor in the same system. Like I had, I used to have an anger story against him that it's not serving me. So I don't, you know, um, and really just like, it's more like, look at this whole thing we're calling education. Right. And and the opportunities were, were missing for learning. Like if people are not sure about if we should stay human, let's at least be effective teachers. And that was not a a strong teachable moment for anyone. And so like, that's like what I think, that's why some of the ways I frame things and I've given presentations on like trauma-informed education, mm-hmm. the thing that I've learned the most is like, our brains are built to learn. Our our brains, we, and then like, whether our IQs are high or not, like we as humans are designed to learn. We are, we can be curious and we can be endlessly capable of learning new skills when our nervous systems feel safe and supported to do so. Yeah. And so what if the greatest gift you can give yourself is like both the mindsets and the environment and the supports to feel safe and secure so that you can learn because we are learning and make it messing up and learning every day on this dang job forever. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> All the time. <laughs> and then especially the thing I have found that's so beautiful is being in this place where it's like, I feel safe with myself. I know how to ground myself and, and be with myself through hard emotions that I can now that extend that out. So with my patients, they, I don't feel like they, I don't not perfectionistic with them. They don't have to perform well for me. I can don't have to fawn back to you as the authority figure, right? Yes, exactly. The connections are so beautiful. And I see people finding their own way towards Mm -hmm. their definition of health and it's beautiful. Like it actually yeah. makes my job rich and rewarding and what I was hoping for to begin with. So the, yeah. the journey has been rocky. There will, I'm sure be much more discovery, um, you know, uh, even like of the impacts of trauma and stuff. But yeah. the other thing that I do is I do teach medical learners and mm-hmm. I do try and name explicitly some of this stuff and talk about mm-hmm. trauma informed. And I try and be just the safest, most supportive preceptor I can be because that's I want to break the cycle I don't want someone in my presence to feel any kind of way like I felt in that operating room because I don't think everyone anyone should have to yeah and and of course to do that like really in the long term right you have to be taking good care of yourself so that you have the resilience and the bandwidth to be able to be a safe place yes right because of course part of his story may have been that he was so burned out, you know, and he was overwhelmed and he was experiencing a lot of things and that blocked him from being able to be aware that you were a learner, that you might not have had the experience that you need, that you might be afraid of him. Absolutely. Right. Oh, because absolutely. That realization for me, you know, thinking it back to, you know, some of my attendings who were really harsh and, you know, angry. 
as you mentioned before, like I've let go of my anger stories about them and, and, and my former workplace to a large extent, because I've been able to see it through this different lens. And I think you'd agree. It sounds like that, that part of this benefit of the painful work that we've done to get to this place and, you know, learning our emotions and all is that we can let go of those anger stories because we give ourselves permission to feel safe now, to be able to understand that our feelings are not dangerous. They may be difficult, but they're not dangerous. And to be able to see those humans were probably doing the best that they could. Mm -hmm. And, and that was the result. Yeah. Right. Also a product of their systems and their training. Yeah. It's because like it it lets the system off the hook if we say it was just those bad apples. Right. You know? Right. And the thing is, like, I that's why I found it really helpful when like speaking of coaching to always like name the systems under which we're operating. Like mm-hmm. basically in some like to name where we get our unintentional thoughts from, where we get our default stories from. It's like yeah. from the system. Right. And it's this interesting there's this, like, there's a bit of a paradox in it because like the system exists because we all believe it should. And so it is actually up to a whole bunch of individuals to shift our mindsets. And that is then how we change our system, you know? And in the meantime, though, I find it hard to hold a lot of anger towards too many people who are operating, you know, in this collective Mm -hmm. mindset that is just Mm -hmm. passed around to one another. So just when we get to individual blame, it's an understandable reaction. And I I'll sit in it for a minute. Like I'll oh be God. petty and angry <laughs> and like I'll, permission to be pissed for a minute. Right. Yeah. And I notice that like, especially when I come back to my human self, I'm able to see the humanity in them and that it just feels better. And it bottom feels line, better now. Let's for feel us. better. Yeah. For us. Cause it doesn't feel good either. Yeah. Um, to carry those anger stories, to be full of blame and wanting to shame other people. Yes. That's a very natural response. It's a protective response, right? But it's not, it's not helpful. I'm trying to think, you know, it's a, it's a primitive defense mechanism as opposed to whatever else they call it. Non, I can't remember. Um, It's, it's not the way that feels good, right? I think for so many of us, right? Burnout and overwhelm just makes this world smaller and smaller, you know? And yeah, we've got shame and we've got trauma. Like we've got all these things kind of piled on top and we just want to retreat by ourselves alone. Mm-hmm. And that it doesn't feel good to be there. It doesn't feel good to need to protect yourself that way. Life is not good there. No. And my perspective, and it sounds like you share, right, is we're not going to wait until the system is fixed. We're not going to let everybody off the hook as though they have no responsibility, but we're really helping people to realize how much control they have, that their feelings are safe, that, you know, they can be a human, right? They can reconnect with those parts of themselves, and life feels much better there. Yes. Right. And we can be human again. We can. In the room. Yes. In any and, room. And really, like, and truly then, 
as we feel better. And I, I, I like that. Speaking of metrics, that's a core one. If not, it's not the only one I suppose, but it's, it's a big one of like, is this plan or is this way of being making me feel better? Am I able Mm. to like feel Mm -hmm. and feel better? Not like maybe just like superficially, like distract me from sadness, but like feel better as in feel all of my feelings, Mm -hmm. but feel connected to myself at home with myself, which ultimately just also means literally, I feel like more pleasure. I feel more satisfaction. I have more capacity for joy because I am staying with myself when I am there. I am changing the system. Cause like I said, I'm at least right. changing my local ecosystem, my patients right. that I interact with, my staff right. that I interact with that has ripple effects. And I then also have the bandwidth to say, do what I've noticed absolutely is like some of my work in the world sounds like for you, like the coaching stuff is like holding space for others to find their way back to themselves and reconnect mm-hmm. with themselves. Yeah, That is another way that I think we both are shifting and changing the system in like in genuine tangible ways. Yeah. And if enough of us do it, then there's not anyone left for them to bully anyway. <laughs> then we can all be like literally all be like cool on the A1C. I'm going to go yeah. back and yeah. work at 75% of my capacity. Oh, you say yeah. I have to work more than that. Interesting. And like it's not that I have no levers, but like frankly, say like all clinicians were like we're all only going to work 75% of our capacities. Yeah figure it out. Like they would have to. (laughs) It's not a surprise that patients walk into the clinic. Sometimes it's not a surprise that patients call the clinic every day or there's heart attack, you know, any, any of the feelings, it's not a surprise. No. Why do we treat it like a surprise? Yeah. Let's be smarter that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Let's be smarter. I love that about how this, how this rolls. Oh, yes. (laughs) Oh, um, this has been a really lovely conversation. I feel like we can probably keep going for a long time, but we I'm should sure we probably can. not. Um, I usually wrap up my show by asking someone who, you know, is experiencing some of what we've talked about today, you know, who feels really like they're struggling, like what what would you want them to hear right now? If you think about, you know, kind of you being in a tough place, yeah. what do you wish somebody would have said to you? I think like one thing is everything that you're feeling makes total sense. Mm-hmm. You make sense as a person and you are not the problem yes, you have great capacity to change your life and do amazing things. And that's beautiful. But even just like right now in this moment, like, yeah, you are not the problem. You are not the problem. We're not broken. No, I think that's like, I have so many people like, they're like, Oh, I have imposter syndrome. I have perfectionism. And like all these different ways of saying I'm broken. I'm the problem. Now I've got to fix my perfectionism. Like it's right. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's like, no, like those are the, the scars and marks of this world that doesn't want you to be your authentic human self. Yes. You, you can come back home to yourself and it is so not your fault. It's not your fault that you are where you are and you have the power to change. It's like those two things at the same time. Yeah. This is the consequence of the training, just like the debt and, uh, Oh, that's so just, just like any number of other costs associated with doing this work. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. And that actually plays well off of like my last question I usually ask is like, what is keeping you human in healthcare now? So yeah, like what have you been noticing both keeping you human through coaching and in your work in healthcare? Yeah. I mean, I think part of it has been letting go of this notion that I control Mm -hmm. things um, and reminding myself um, sometimes better than others you know, that I'm, I'm not responsible for many of the things, most of the things that occur with my patients. And I'm also not responsible for most of the things that happen to them and their experiences in healthcare. What I can be is a human and I'm better when I am a human in the room, having a human connection with someone, um, listening to their story and helping to figure out what do we need to do or you know what validation does this person need or what are they afraid of to try and figure out some kind of plan and that feels so much better um i don't know if you've experienced this i feel like i've got you know kind of a a big handful of patients with you know kind of unexplained situations like long COVID, you know, like everyone's got pots and long COVID and, you know, all these, all these kind of, you know, unexplained physical symptoms and mental symptoms. And sometimes, you know, after we've done tests and we've done things, you know, just having those human moments and sitting with them and acknowledging that what they're experiencing is real, that it sucks, that I can't explain it, that it's really hard to have an ununderstood medical condition that we don't have a great label for yeah. and that there might not be other medical things that will help them. Mm. And when I come to those conversations as a human, I feel better. They feel better. Yeah. Right. And, and we're just, we're just people mm. listening to each other, you know, supporting each other, um, trying to move through this world, you know, hopefully with, with some grace and some self-kindness and compassion. And that's really satisfying. Whereas before it was all about, I have to fix everything. Yep. I have to fix this medical thing. I have to fix the consultant who was rude to you. I have to, you know, the lab slip that got left behind, you know, the appointment that was, I have to fix that you have chest pain and you're coming into the clinic when you should be in the emergency room. (laughs) Yep. Right. I felt like I owned all of that. Mm. And I'm, you know, having to realize, right. I'm not a bad doctor for putting down those responsibilities and meeting the situation where I am and where they are. Mm -hmm. But the chest pain in the clinic always gets me. (laughs) it's like you're not supposed to be here (laughs) why are you here man (laughs) tell you what we're gonna go to the emergency room (laughs) Uh, sometimes it's the easiest decision you'll make all day though you're like well sometimes yeah great news how sick are you oh pretty sick yeah yeah i actually have i actually have an answer for you and it's leave this place not here yeah (laughs) yeah (laughs) i love that thank you so much um oh and then i guess like we'll share so obviously um, 
you can say the name of your podcast again, but then beyond that, like if folks are interested in working with you or learning more from you, where would they find your stuff on the internet? Um, so my podcast is ending physician overwhelm and some of our listeners will be listening to it on my side and then we'll send them to yours as well. Um, my, uh, coaching practice is called healthier for good. And so it's www.healthierforgood.com. Um, and you can find out more about one-on-one coaching. And then I also run a program for women physicians based on Brene Brown's work. And that program runs every, um, it's about a three month program and, uh, we start up again, September 10th. And so I'm excited to get going again. Um, and tell my listeners, um, where they can find you and listen to your podcast and find out more about working with you. Yes. Well, um, yes. The name of my podcast is the other human in the room. Um, and that's you clinician. You're the other human in the room. Um, I, my stuff is at joanchanmd.com. And then I'm on like Instagram at joanchanmd and the same handle on like, I'm technically a little bit on TikTok. I, my handle still exists on Twitter slash X or whatever it's called, but I don't, I could, we don't do that anymore. (laughs) It's it's scary in there. I don't, I don't know what Mr. Musk is doing over there. So, but the main, the main place I hang out really is Instagram. If you want to watch that read from me. Um, Yeah. And so I do one-on-one coaching as well as I've just started my first group program that's focused on connection called interconnected. And it's, um, folks in healthcare who want to practice connection with each other, with ourselves, with patients and in community. So that's what I've got going on. Lovely. Well, um, I'm so glad that we got a chance to sit and talk and now we can be, um, we can be internet friends, uh, for real. Yes. (laughs) Such a weird world that that is one good thing about the pandemic is I've never met so many people virtually and yes, become friends. Like it's awesome. So, um, thank you again for making the time and, uh, I'm so excited for both of our listeners to hear the conversation and get a chance to learn a little bit more about kind of where we see things now, right. From our perspective, because life feels better here. Yeah. Right. And even if people aren't doing the work that we're doing, coaching others, they can benefit and see that when we do this difficult work, right. When we kind of pick our head up out of the sand, right. And no longer kind of, you know, actively self-protecting that we can feel better. We can feel better and we can feel our emotions better and eventually let go of some of the anger stories. Right. Yeah. Blame. Amen. I think that's what both our missions are all about. And I love what you're doing because this is how we do it. This is how we change the system. So it was such a pleasure to talk to you. Yeah. I would love to take this work deeper with you. Visit joanchanmd.com today and discover my growing menu of options for restorative medical education to suit your learning needs. I offer one-on-one coaching, customized workshops, and self-study courses that allow you to connect not only with my work on a deeper level, but also with other healthcare humans just like you. So if you want to start humanizing your work and healthcare to a deeper level and do it in community with others, please visit joanchanmd.com and find those options and what fits you and your life today.